If you are ready to change the way people experience the transition to parenthood, you've come to the right place. On this podcast, we interview postpartum professionals, academics and researchers, as well as parents with unique perspectives on postpartum. Whether you've been working with new families for decades or are brand new to postpartum care, we'd love you to join us. I'm your host, Julia Jones. Hello and welcome to the Newborn Mothers podcast. Today, I have Sophie Brock on the podcast who uh, is a motherhood studies, I don't know if you like the word expert, but um, you you are. <laughs> You've got a PhD in, in um, studying motherhood, motherhood studies, and we're going to talk a little bit today about the social construct of motherhood, but also how that impacts upon um, many of our roles as women and especially our roles as postpartum professionals. So Sophie, do you want to introduce yourself in your own words? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Julia. And I'm really interested to, and curious to see where our conversation leads. Um, it's you know, even in that introduction or even in the process of being asked, introduce yourself. Who are you? I mean, that also gets at the root of what a social scientist is interested in. Like, how do we present ourselves to the world? How do we want to be perceived? How does the way that others see us shape how we see ourselves? Um, and so that's at the core of what I'm interested in for mothers specifically. And so part of what I've looked at through my research and my studies is how does the experience of being a mother in today's society, how does that feel when we take into consideration all of the external factors that come our way? So when I, I talk about this as kind of an analogy of thinking about a fish in a tank and going, okay, well, how does the tank affect our identity? How does the environment affect our relationships? How does our broader world affect what it means for us to be a mother? Um, so, yeah, that's that's my perspective as a social scientist, as a sociologist, and I've just always had a real fascination with mothers' experiences and our inner lives. So, yeah, that's that's what lights me up. Yeah, and that's my next question is, like, how did you come to this? Because it sounds like even before you had children you were interested in this, this yeah. topic. And identity is such a huge part of motherhood, probably in every culture, because I always think, the mother is like the ultimate archetype. It's like every culture has expectations and a role and ideas about what a mother is and should be and should look like and should act like. Um, you know, there's no one who's immune to that. Um, so, yeah, how did you become interested in that as a topic? Yeah, well, I've I've always had a fascination with I've always kept a diary, a journal, since as long as I can remember. And so each evening I would sit down and I would write in my diary and we'd take trips away as a family and I would write about things and try and capture my lived experience through language and words and try and make meaning of what I was experiencing. And so that is in the context of as well my own kind of childhood and upbringing. My dad was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. It's also called ALS in other countries um, when I was five and he was given two to five years to live. And so it was a terminal diagnosis and it's a degenerative disease. And so over time you have like muscle wastage and you slowly lose your independence essentially. And so I witnessed that experience that throughout my childhood and we were grateful that very miraculously he lived for 20 years. And so what I witnessed over my own childhood and upbringing are the ways in which my mum needed to step into a caregiver role beyond the mothering role. And so I was very conscious of the ways that our outer world perceived us as a family and the barriers that we faced and that my dad and mum faced 
in moving through daily life because of disability and stigma and expectations. And I witnessed, and as a family, we noticed all the ways that dad was idealized and cast as a hero, which he was, but he always emphasized my mum and that you actually can't talk about him without talking about her and us as a family. And so I kind of had this awareness from my own childhood experience and, and made meaning and explored my own sense of self through writing. And that carried over through into high school. I did this major work looking at Sylvia Plath, who's a poet, and Kathleen Folbig, who wrote journals. And, and it was all essentially looking at ambivalence in motherhood and identity. And so these themes sort of carried me and my interest uh, throughout those formative years and then into my university education. And, and through kind of a long path, it wove me into a place where I stumbled across motherhood studies as a discipline. And it went from there in terms of opening my interest and, and pursuing this area of study. Yeah, so you'd started your PhD in motherhood studies before you were a mother yourself. Yeah, so I did my honours dissertation first um, and that was, yeah, well before I became a mother, um, then went into the PhD and I became pregnant in my final year of the PhD and I submitted when I was, I think my first submission was when I was six months pregnant and then you kind of, you get it back from your examiners and then you've got to submit it again and then you wait to get your final like email and letter saying that you've been awarded that and I received that a few days before my daughter was born. And I went into, I was almost 42 weeks when I had her. So I felt like she was like waiting for me to receive that email before she decided to come. you got to have your PhD first, mum. That's right. <laughs> yeah, get that out of the way. That's amazing. So I also started learning about postpartum care before I was a mother myself. But then when I became a mother, it really opened my eyes to a whole lot of new things. For me, the really the thing that I'd never learned about, which is different to you, was actually the identity shift. Um, and for me, what I learned about after I had a baby was how much I became a different person and how much none of my postpartum doula studies until then had really mentioned that. Um, so a lot of that came later when I started studying neuroscience and anthropology because I wanted those questions answered. So I'm curious, you were already obviously had a little bit of that identity piece. What what revealed itself for you when you became a mother yourself that you perhaps hadn't realised before? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a really big difference between theoretical knowledge and lived experience. And so I would say that in lots of ways, motherhood studies really equipped me well to navigate the identity shifts and changes that came with mothering. It equipped me well to handle guilt, ambivalence, anger, the perfect mother myth, the pressures and expectations I placed on myself and others placed on me. I felt pretty confident with a lot of that. Um, what I felt less confident about was the the act of caregiving and what that would mean. And when I became a mother, I, my marriage ended unexpectedly, sort of the week that I gave birth. And so I had this expectation of what my family would look like and what my postpartum would look like. And that all unraveled really quickly. And so when I was in the, and I've written about this recently, actually, for an article, it's not out yet, but in retrospect, looking back, I can see the ways that I drew on particular tools to help write a new narrative for myself and to help heal and to help me feel anchored and tethered to some part of my identity, actually through my mothering. 
Um, but at the time, you're in it and you're in the thick of it. And so I make meaning from it once I've come through the experience and I can see all the ways that actually my studies really did support me and equip me to have the tools to navigate that rebuilding of self. And also at the time, sometimes you're just putting one foot in front of the other and doing the best you can with what you have. Um, and so probably that space of rebuilding was a really big shock to me. And the other thing that I did not expect was the interconnection between my daughter and I in terms of nervous system stuff. I didn't know any of that beforehand. I didn't know what biologically normal infant sleep looked like. I didn't know a lot of the practices that, you know, your listeners and the people that you support are trained in. I didn't know a lot of that in terms of the practical caregiving and how I needed to be looked after as a mother. So, yeah, it's complex, isn't it? There's so many different dimensions. So interesting. It's almost like we came at it from the exact opposite direction yep. and then have ended up kind of in the same um, place anyway. <laughs> interesting. Um, amazing. So so then I'm interested, why don't you tell me a little bit first about what is this idea of motherhood? Like what, what do you mean by that? Because there might be some people kind of listening going, I don't really get it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's really normal because actually part of how it functions is that we don't get it at first. Um, So I mentioned earlier that fish tank analogy that I used to try and help make it a little bit more tangible. So if we were to all imagine ourselves as fish inside a tank, the fish are the mothers or everyone in society, the the bowl, the fish tank, that's our society. That's the world that we live within. And we're swimming around in water, which is our culture. And we don't know we're in the tank until we start having conversations like this. So you go and do sociology or social science. Oftentimes it's just considered this is the way things are. This is just what it means to be a mother. And what happens, though, when we live within a particular time, cultural context, historical period, in a particular family structure, we experience that tank in a really different way to if we lived 200 years ago or if we're a single mother versus if we're partnered or if we have a disability or if our children have additional needs. All these different things shape how we experience that tank. And so if, if we were to talk about, well, what do we actually mean when we say motherhood is socially constructed? Are we saying motherhood's made up? Like, what does that actually mean? Um, what I would say is when we say motherhood's socially constructed, we're saying that our social world and what our culture deems to be the good mother impacts how we see ourselves, impacts how we talk about ourselves, impacts the value that we have on ourselves. It impacts how we deem ourselves to be going as mothers and whether we perceive ourselves to be failing or thriving. And it also impacts us in really tangible ways as to whether we have maternity leave, whether there are certain barriers that we have in front of us that make it harder for us to mother, opposed to whether we are actually supported in community, as you so often talk about, Julia, and going, we're not meant to be doing this alone in the ways that we so often are. And so coming back to this fish tank analogy, we're swimming around in this water, we're absorbing all these ideas about what it means to be a mother, and that all happens way before we become mothers. We absorb those ideas through our own family systems, through how we were mothered, through how we hear people talk about mothering, through media advertising, through pop culture, through our systems like school, maternity system, all these things impact how we how we come to know what it means to be a mother in our society. And if we were to get a big black texter and write all around on that tank, imagine we have an alien drop in from Mars and they say, 
tell me what being a good mother means in your society. Paint me a picture. And we were to write out on that tank all of the things. So the perfect mum, the good mum, well, she, motherhood came easily for her. She didn't have to fight. She didn't have to struggle. She wanted to be a mother. She aspired to be a mother. She had a glowing pregnancy. She loves every minute of being a mother. She finds motherhood come to her naturally and easily. She doesn't struggle to breastfeed. She has a baby who is a good, I'm using inverted commas, she has a good baby who sleeps and does all the things that good babies do. She's presumed to be partnered. She's often put on the pedestal as being the white middle-class mother who's heterosexual and ticks all of those boxes of the white picket fence and the house and the idea of what it means to be a successful adult. She has children, right? Not too many because that's irresponsible, but not just one because then that's what about giving your child a sibling? She didn't become a mother too young because that's irresponsible. She didn't become a mother too old because then we label her the geriatric mother. She's usually not disabled. She finds things easy. I mean, we could spend the entire podcast talking about it, right? But part of what this picture paints is an archetype, an idealized image of what it means to be a mother that leaves very little room for nuance and also traps us because we can never actually meet, no matter how much we can taught ourselves, we can never meet all of the idealized expectations of who that perfect mother is. And so we've been absorbing them often unknowingly through that water we're swimming within, through that tank. Then when we become mothers, they've embedded themselves as beliefs. And this is where a lot of mum guilt comes from, that we judge ourselves as not being enough, not doing enough, not being good enough, failing in some way. And so that's a kind of in some ways simple, in some ways complex answer to your question of what we actually mean when we talk about the social construction. We're talking about how the world outside of us impacts our experience of who we are and how we experience our motherhood. Mm, That was so confronting to listen to. As you were giving all those descriptions, I noticed I started sitting in really defensive, (laughs) you know, across my arms, I leaned back and, you know, because I don't think there'd be a single person listening who could possibly tick all of those boxes. I mean, every mother on the planet has, you know, there's no way anyone's going to be able to actually achieve all of that or even want to because, you know, some people are single by choice and some people don't want to pick a fence, you know. So <laughs> it's a, it's funny that we still have this ideal and that, and that also that thing that when you take a little step back, you realise that other cultures have different ideas of of what that should look like um and then I'm interested as well in kind of taking that conversation one step further when you were mentioning your your mother um stepping into that caregiving role with your father I think that's really interesting because that mother myth does impact all of the caregiving we do and I would even say it impacts professional caregiving for example, postpartum professionals, but also probably nurses and teachers and and all of those kinds of particularly feminised roles. So, yeah, I don't know. What's your experience with that too? I think that a lot of the time women step into positions that are critical, life-saving and life-changing. They step into spaces though to fill gaps that exist because structures have failed to provide responses and solutions. And so I think that unpaid care work is devalued, but it's heavily relied upon in our society, but it is seen as not work. It's not financially 
recognized, compensated. And I think that that, and we know from the research, right, that we see that in caregiving professions, like people who are teachers, nurses, childcare educators, anybody who is in a role that involves the provision of care in some way, often faces some sort of barrier around the value of their work or the necessity of it. And I think on the one hand, we valorize care and we say, oh, the super mum, how could we do it without her? But then we also rely upon her. And when she has needs, that's inconvenient for us. Um, and so I think, and I say us, I'm talking about our society and our broader structure. And so I think that it is whenever we're talking about care, we're also talking about social relations and we're also talking about power and how do all of those things come to impact us as individuals and we're also talking about love so these are really core things that come that get at who we are our identity our lived experience and I look at the care that my mum provided for my dad and that was absolutely out of love it was also sometimes out of necessity because someone had to do it. Um, and so I think it's it's both and, and being able to actually hold the complexity of what our lived experiences are and to be able to see ourselves and others more fully, fully is what I think needs to happen when we're talking about those caregiving roles for mothers and others more broadly. Yeah, I love that. That I could talk about this topic all day, but I want to bring us back as well to then your, your journey. So how did you go from single mum uh, you know, a new doctor, Sophie Brock, uh, and finding your next path in the world, you know, what made you then start this business and, um, you know, how did that become your next step? Is this podcast making you wonder if becoming a postpartum professional is right for you? Download our free guide at newbornmothers.com. You'll learn what qualifications and training you need, what sort of hours you can work, what to wear, and most importantly, how to actually make a living from postpartum care. Because it's not feminism if women don't get paid. Visit newbornmothers.com to learn more. Yeah, well, I was trying to figure out how am I going to do this? <laughs> so how am I going to make enough money to live, to support my daughter, to support myself, and to not just survive, but find a path through which I could thrive. The, the big thing Sorry, that I... Necessity and out of love. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I think a big a big thing that I had to work through probably throughout the first two years and then often, you know, ongoing as healing often is, is moving from my own mentality of like victimhood in some way, essentially, of I didn't choose this, this is so hard, why is this so hard, this isn't fair. And I think sometimes that's really useful for us to be in that place and receive validation, affirmation and understand the way that structural things and things outside of us come to affect the level of choice or freedom that we have. And also I had to find a path that would enable me to take back my power in some way. And so I knew what for me, what were the priorities? And the first priority was that I didn't want to move. I didn't want to move away from my mum, my sister, my close friends, and I didn't want to have to go through family court either with my ex-husband. 
And so all of those factors were first kind of shaping, well, then what are my options for my career? What can that look like? I could do casual teaching at the university. I could work on building up my publications to try and move. How do I position myself and my subject area expertise? Because there's a few different routes I could have gone with that based on my dissertation. And I started listening to podcasts when I was walking my daughter in her pram intentionally going over the grass so that it would bump a lot to help <laughs> shake her into sleep with like loud music playing oftentimes too. She would love the, the stimulation of that was relaxing for her. Um, and I came across podcasts. I came across Nourishing the Mother podcast, across the Mother Kind podcast with Zoe Blasky. I started listening to women speaking about their experiences of mothering and motherhood and looking at how to build something that doesn't exist to help meet a need or respond to a gap that you've identified in your mothering experience. And so I started thinking about how that could look in drawing on all of the work that I've done theoretically and conceptually in the space of motherhood studies and to not just be able to teach this work to people in a university setting, which is what I had aspired to do, but I thought, well, what if I could take this and just speak to mothers directly on a podcast? What if I could just put it out there and, and have other people listen rather than needing to go into a university setting. Um, and so that sort of started me thinking and, and eventually led to the development of my podcast and then of my business and offering services for mothers. And then I thought, well, I can make a bigger impact if I actually help train the people who work with mothers. So instead of me working with that mother, I can work with the professional and then she can work or they can work with lots of different mothers. So that was sort of the, the pathway that I took. And as you know as well, Julia, like building a business is not linear and there are many different twists and turns that come with that. But um, that was my goal and my focus was to find a way to work for myself doing something that I love and to feel as though I'm making some sort of impact. Mm. And aren't we so lucky that we can um, just cut out the middleman and you can just start a podcast and speak directly to mums I just think that's such a like a gift to our generation and I always think like you know what would my grandmothers have thought to just be able to like broadcast their feelings their experiences their thoughts and I think it's quite revolutionary to to just be able to put that out there um so tell us a little bit about those when how old's your daughter now she's six Six, yeah. So it's been about six years, obviously, since you kind of like yeah this journey. I think I started the podcast when she was two, two and a bit. It was it was when she started sleeping. I think a stretch of like four hours or something in the night, and you feel like a new, refreshed person after having you know hours. Take hour. on the world. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, I can do anything now. I've just got so much sleep up my sleeve. And look, I'm still recovering from that now, trying to adjust my expectations of what my body actually needs in terms of rest. <laughs> um, and so I actually started the podcast and uh, I would record like downstairs once I got her to sleep. And then I would just pause the recording because I would need to go up and resettle her often at the start of the night. She'd wake a lot. And so I would just then edit it all together. And so um, it was it was a lot of working in slices of space early on. And I would say that it was when she was maybe three to four, probably closer to four, I felt as though I could start to dedicate more time when she was going to um, preschool a couple of days a week predictably. And, and now that she's in school, this has been the first year she's been in primary school. 
Um, again, it's adjusting my expectations and and the rhythm of what my daily life is and therefore what is possible for me or what I envision as possible in my business. Yeah, I love that. And then the business just grows as you grow and and adapts. As, and that's the great thing about running your own business is it would be almost impossible to find a job that could suit the different stages of, of parenthood. Um, so that investment early obviously pays off in the in the longer term. Um, so what were some of the sort of bigger challenges that cropped up along the way? Because starting a business, it, it really isn't easy. Um, I interviewed the other Sophie from Australian Birth Stories podcast, and she said she started her podcast in a car um, for that exact reason. The kids were at home and she was just like, I just needed a, somewhere quiet where I could shut the door and, and record. Um, so, you know, I think mothers are very innovative and creative. We always find these really unique solutions. Um, so, yeah, tell me a little bit about I guess, some of the challenges and then also some of the ways that you overcame that. Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, a big challenge has been thinking space um, because I was very used to when doing my research and my dissertation, having long stretches of time where I can think and string a thought and string a thought and string a thought, and then it leads to something. And then I can put all the pieces out on the paper and I can move it around. And as all of us who are practiced in caregiving know, that it's extremely difficult, near impossible to do that when you're caring for children. Um, and I found it really hard to deal with not having predictable sl slices of time in order to be able to do that. Um, and that's for a range of, a range of reasons. Um, but that's probably was my biggest challenge was the sleep feeling and feeling as though I was able to move from one thought to the next and build some sort of coherence around that. Um, and so how I dealt with that was I actually, well, I think I enrolled my daughter into childcare before she was actually ready, you know, in hindsight, because I needed some sort of help. And I had very little help from my um, relationships, support network for various reasons. And so I dealt with like guilt around that of going, what what do I need and what does she need? And how can I patchwork together some sort of response that is going to help both of us a little bit, but sometimes need to prioritize my needs so that I can care for her in the way that I want to as a mother. And so that was really difficult. Um she wouldn't she wouldn't eat or sleep at this childcare center. I mean, she was, I think she was 15 months old and um, I navigated a lot of barriers. I moved her to multiple different places. I would drop her off, drive to the cafe down the street, work for two hours, go back, pick her up, drive her around for a sleep, have my laptop in the car, do a bit more work. It really, um, I feel really grateful that I had the flexibility to be able to do that because many mothers wouldn't have that choice. Um, and I think in hindsight, I I just did the best that I could with what I knew and the resources I had at the time to give me half an hour to be able to write. And I didn't have really big aspirations when I first began. I wasn't working on launching a course straight away. I was working on writing a blog post and sharing about that on social media through a number of posts and building community, building relationships and building essentially my vision of how things could be. And that involves also creating new identity um, and pulling on threads of my identity that I felt 
were um, in some ways kind of being stifled or uh, feeling as though they didn't have air, kind of giving myself space to, to breathe more into myself. And then that, of course, benefits my mother in as well. So I'd say, yeah, sleep and finding those slices of time and trying to engineer ways to give myself those little spaces of time to do my work. Yeah, I can relate to that so much. <laughs> I think it is like childcare. You know, um, one thing we talk about a lot at Newborn Mothers is that in traditional um, cultures, anthropologists have found that children would have between 8 and 14 adult carers every day. And now we have one. And, um, yeah, and then you kind of cobble together this hodgepodge of childcare with, you know, a backup for your backup for your backup. And then it's the school holidays and it all falls apart anyway. And and then the mother's the only one who feels guilty. And I'm like, where are the other 13 people you know like there should be 13 other people who care about this problem and and are trying to solve it too and feel and they should feel some guilt that they're not contributing but anyway it's just a huge mess isn't it um so I think it's very relatable I think childcare is probably really the number one um challenge for mums start starting a business one thing that used to frustrate me too is that childcare is not tax deductible so I could buy all sorts of things through my business and not pay taxes on it. I could do training I could hire staff I could pay for website design I could buy business cards I could even buy clothing you know and yet the childcare was the biggest barrier to working and it wasn't counted as a cost of work. And I was like, but I can't work without childcare. Why isn't this a tax deduction? <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. And I look, I eventually, um, you know, my daughter also had lots of health challenges for the first few years and then continues to. Um, and so like money was a massive, massive barrier and honestly a massive motivator for me in my business. My first goal financially was to be able to afford swimming lessons. Like I'm like, I'm going to be able to make enough money from this program so I can afford swimming lessons and not have to stress about it. And then I can buy myself a coffee when I take her to swimming lessons and not feel stressed. You know, that was kind of like my first thing that I really like uh, focused on. Um, and then eventually I had to take my daughter out of a daycare for various reasons. She wasn't coping. And my mum stepped in and said she was going to pay for a uni student to come to the house twice a week for a couple of hours to give me that space. And she did that for six months. And that helped me actually get my business off the ground, launch it, get into developing course programs. And then by the time that six months or so passed, things had shifted and a space at a, a a daycare had opened up and things went really well after that. And I was able to get more reliable care. So I think it's also, you know, as we're doing in this conversation, I hope for listeners, like speaking to all of the different factors that go into shaping where, where people see us, you know, and there's so many different elements to that. And there's so many different, um, different barriers and supports that exist for us. And that's why I think it's one thing to be really mindful of mindful of is comparing ourselves to others who may be in business or maybe mothering and to just know that there's all these different and often invisible things that are going on behind the scenes that contribute to that. I think that's a really good point. And, and also that things haven't always been like this. Like I'm very fortunate now in my business. I'm in a really great place that we earn plenty of money. I've bought a home. Um, we don't really have to worry about money anymore, which is, you know, it's such a blessing um, but same, I mean, when I started, I was like you, I remember saving up to buy a coffee, like being able to go to meet my friends at the park with their babies 
and not being able to buy a coffee was like really isolating and I felt ashamed of that and that was definitely in those early days of starting my business was a huge motivation that I was like I want to be able to participate in life I don't want to be isolated by motherhood because of finances you know I refuse that um, and that was a huge motivation for me. But, yeah, it's not an easy path and, and it's not something that we do alone. Like I might not have 14 adult carers for my children, <laughs> um, but I certainly have a huge village of support both inside my business and in my personal life at home, you know, family support, paid support, just systems and automation, lowering standards. Like there's a thousand things that go go into making this all um, work. It's not It's not magic. It's not luck, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in the same way, I, you know, I love that emphasis to say in the same ways as we're not meant to mother alone, like we're not meant to build our businesses alone either and holding the ant, you know, saying that actually there can be a lot we can do and drawing on our own agency and motivation and insight and creativity and innovation. And also we're not doing this just off the off our own labour alone. Like there's other things that are at play here in supporting us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think people realise I had to do, uh, I get a grant um, from the government every year and it's a good chance for me to check in with all of that. I have to tell them how many people are in my team. Um, and I was really surprised. I think there's like seven people who work in my business on a regular basis. And, you know, that was like pretty amazing to me to kind of actually write that all down. So, yeah, that's amazing. And I love, you know, you mentioned this when, when I interviewed you for my podcast in actually also naming some of this as to show what can be possible. You know, like I think I go back to my story and listening to those early podcasts, like those women showed me what was possible, that, that you, you can do this. There are avenues where you can dream this up. And I think also being able to, at the stage of business that you are now at, Julia, and, and for myself, you know, I'm really, I'm able to go buy myself the coffees, you know, and I've recently, you know, just put a deposit down on a piece of land to eventually build a home with my my mum, my daughter, and my sister around the corner. And like, I never would have imagined that could have been possible in the very beginning, but it's also like you build on your dreams and you build on creating pathways for other women to also create their own dreams and to support each other in that and seeing us all as this ecosystem whilst acknowledging all of the structural socioeconomic barriers that exist as well. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful, beautiful point. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what you do now and where people can find you. Yeah, well, now I spend the majority of my time working with people who work in motherhood support um, and postpartum period. And so I have my certification program, which is a training in motherhood studies um, that I run once a year. I also offer mentoring for mother supporting professionals and I have some self-study courses for mothers um, and professionals as well. And, and of course, my podcast, which I was lucky enough to interview you on, Julia. So those are the ways that people can work with me and where I'm focusing my interest um, and investing my time at the moment. But yeah, as ever, it's always looking at ways to innovate and how to how to grow ourselves and our work and our thinking. Um, and yeah, I'm really grateful to be in conversation with you, Julia, and for all you're doing in this space and for everyone who's taken the time to listen. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure to connect with you, Sophie. And if anyone wants to learn more, they can go to drsophiebrock.com and we'll pop all those links underneath the podcast as well. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much, Julia. 
Here at Newborn Mothers, we believe that every family has the right to high quality postpartum care. If you want to join us, learn more at newbornmothers.com. And if you like this podcast, we'd really love you to leave us a five-star review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.